They say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but David Yeskel is letting some travel secrets out. Las Vegas has always been and still continues to be a place where you can let it go a little more than in other places, where a little more is tolerated. Jacksonville, Florida is best known as the largest city in land area in the United States, but lesser known are its ecological and historical treasures. Wisconsin is more than just a flyover state in America's upper Midwest, and we'll find out what makes it unique among Midwestern states. The Czech Republic can trace its lineage back to the 9th century, and it's a relatively new nation with old-world charms. You see a combination of Renaissance or Gothic or Baroque architecture, but, for example, you can also find there a lot of buildings that are built in Art Nouveau or Art Deco style. Join us as we travel to Las Vegas, Jacksonville, Wisconsin, Czech Republic, and visit Arkansas and Martinique in between on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, we'll talk to Yuri Duzar from the Czech Republic. This landlocked country in the center of Europe is a land of stories. From its dynamic capital of Prague, to medieval towns and castles, to its low mountains and valleys, the diverse landscape of the Czech Republic is filled with surprises at every corner. Architecture from the past and present, culinary delights and festivals make the Czech Republic memorable for any visitor. We will also share some interviews with tourism representatives we met at the Travel Media Showcase. Patty Jimenez will take us on a virtual tour of Jacksonville, Florida, and we'll get a taste of Wisconsin beyond beer and cheese with Christina Rosenberg and Carla Minsky. For more than 20 years, veteran travel journalist David Yeskel has made Las Vegas his beat. David has seen the evolution of Las Vegas over the decades and has seen the city reinvent itself at many points. From its humble beginnings as Sin City to the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas has a global reputation for fun. But at its core, it's a burgeoning metropolis with two million that manages to retain a small town feel for its residents amidst the bright lights. David joins us to share a different perspective on Las Vegas, as well as offer some tips to get the most from a Las Vegas visit. Las Vegas is evolving and growing by leaps and bounds. It's now a major metropolitan area with over 2 million people, and it's gone from being a city of gaming to a business center that's attracting internet companies, and there's a brand new arena under construction that may draw an NHL team. What is it about Las Vegas that you can tell us about this uh, new Las Vegas that still draws tourists but is now really becoming one of America's major metropolitan centers for growth and opportunity? Las Vegas has always been this constantly evolving, always in motion city that seems to evolve at a much more rapid pace than any other city. And I think that was always driven by the hospitality industry, uh, by the gaming industry. Initially, of course, it was all about gambling. As it's gotten bigger, it's become more sophisticated. So there's a draw now for professional sports teams. It's a major convention center. It always was, but more than ever, Las Vegas is drawing more and larger conventions. So they can accommodate a convention of 20,000 people or 30,000 people, while there's other things still going on in town, too. Las Vegas was established in 1905 and incorporated in 1911. What can you tell us about the early origins of this city in the desert? The origins of the city, as most people know, it really started in the 1950s, Bugsy Siegel, I'm sure everyone's heard his name, mobster that had this idea that people wanted to come to Las Vegas for a gambling experience and be treated with a luxurious experience. And he built the Flamingo, which was essentially the first luxury gambling casino on the Strip. And that started it all, and it really grew and it mushroomed from there. Speaking of Vegas and the evolution uh There are a lot of nicknames associated with the city, including Sin City. Where did that emanate from? Las Vegas was always thought of as a place where 
victimless misdemeanors should be accommodated. (laughs) 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 Prostitution was fairly open. Gambling, of course, was legal. Las Vegas has always been and still continues to be a place where you can let it go a little more than in other places, where a little more is tolerated and uh, things that may be borderline legal in other places have always been permitted or uh, accepted a little more easily in Las Vegas. That's what's built up this aura around Sin City. So a lot of people don't realize it's become like the strip club capital of the world. (laughs) There are some strip clubs in Las Vegas that are just bigger than anything else anywhere else. And it just speaks to the scale of what's built in Vegas and how they accommodate all tastes, sinners and non-sinners alike. What are some of the common misperceptions that people have about Las Vegas? There's this more recent perception of Las Vegas as a family-friendly destination. And the tourism concerns in Las Vegas have not really promoted this. It's just become kind of accepted that there are a lot of things people can do with their kids there. And there are. There are a lot of great things people can do. There are free shows. The, the afternoon magic shows are great for kids. The pools are great entertainment. People may call it a family-friendly destination. I wouldn't necessarily go there. There's a qualification there. And that is, yes, there are a lot of things people can do with their families and with their kids, but what parents can't do is they can't shut off the adult stimuli. And the ads for these strip clubs that I was just talking about are rolling billboards on big trucks going down the strip. There are bachelorette groups with uh, hats on that say something you might not want your kids to see. So while there are a lot of things for kids and families to do in Vegas, it's not entirely appropriate, and it's up to the parents to determine whether or not they can handle it. One of the things that Vegas is known for are the massive buffets. I mean, Vegas is an over-the-top destination, and a lot of their buffets are over-the-top as well and somewhat affordable. What are your favorite? I know you have a list of top five. What are your favorite buffet places? So my favorite buffets are really what I consider to be the gourmet buffets in Vegas. Gourmet food and buffets are not mutually exclusive in Vegas. They may be in other places, but they're not in Vegas. It's a way that Vegas visitors can get gourmet food without $200 or $300 bill for a couple, which is often the bill in some of the better restaurants in town. So a couple of my favorites are the buffet at Bellagio which uh, was the granddaddy of the gourmet buffets. They started it. Uh, Steve Wynn actually started it when he built Bellagio. It's it's great quality food. On the weekends, you can find Kobe-style sirloin, quality cold seafood, rack of lamb for $35 to $40 a person. It's a great value, and it really is a gourmet meal. A couple of others that I like a lot are the Bacchanal Buffet at Caesars, which is now the largest buffet in Vegas, nine separate kitchens. Uh, it's massive. Uh, you can find all kinds of also gourmet items like a tomahawk ribeye. For breakfast, they have red velvet pancakes. They'll make souffles. There's Chinese dim sum station. And there are two or three other ones I'll mention quickly. The buffet at Wynn is always great quality. The Wicked Spoon at the Cosmopolitan is a very hip, kind of new, small plates buffet. Everything's individually portioned. Uh, great quality. That's a great option. Also, cost about at about $35. And the buffet at Aria is my fifth favorite. And there's a tandoor oven there. It's the Strip's only buffet with an Indian tandoor oven. Mm. David, as I think about Las Vegas today, the city has undergone a tremendous transformation. You mentioned Ari, and I know that's part of that huge city center complex there on the Strip. And someone who, who grows up in Las Vegas, who's born there, goes to school there, when you talk to those folks, What feelings do they have about Las Vegas? Because I know it as a place where people from all over the country and the world come to live, to escape high taxes, to enjoy life in the desert, play golf, and all of that stuff. What's the perspective from someone who actually is a born and bred Las Vegan, I guess? So for those people, it's actually a much smaller town. Uh, It's a much smaller feel. Uh, And it's still, in a lot of ways, even though Vegas has grown, it's it's got a small city feel. And for the people who were born and and lived there, 
those people typically don't go on the strip. So they typically avoid the strip, not only because of traffic, just because it's a lifestyle that doesn't mesh with theirs, for instance. Uh, they understand that that's where the jobs are. Uh, you know, tourism, of course, is the, is the major job generator in Nevada and in Las Vegas, of course. But it's a very different, kind of almost like a small town atmosphere for the people who grow up there. And they actually frequent these hotel resorts that are off the strip that are considered locals resorts. And so they'll, there'll be specials for them, midweek dinner specials, and their bowling alleys and them, movie theaters. It's a completely different business model that these companies have evolved to serve for locals, really. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are talking to David Yeskel for an insider's perspective on Las Vegas. As you look into the future with a growing metropolis that Vegas is, and even though gaming has defined this city and will probably continue to do so in the future, what do you see as kind of being some of the things that are going to transform how people think and view Las Vegas? Las Vegas is becoming actually less of a gambling destination, and that is by design. Whereas the majority of revenue for the, the large casino resorts was typically derived from gambling, these days it's about 40%. Mm. And, and the rest is made up of revenue from accommodations, of course, shows, uh, entertainment, dining, restaurants, spa, and shopping. These have become bigger and bigger pieces of the Las Vegas industry pie because not everybody wants to gamble. So gambling has taken this, this almost backseat, I would say, to everything else going on in Las Vegas. So it's a more well-rounded destination than it ever was. And it evolved that way to attract ever more visitors, and it's working. So I think we'll continue to see this evolution of Vegas as everything else and gambling, with gambling being a, being a smaller and smaller part of the pie. David, speaking of shows, what is the best way to score discounted tickets to some of the hot shows that appear in Vegas? I recommend that people, if if, they're, if they can, to travel to Vegas midweek. And in Vegas terms, that's Sunday through Thursday night. The biggest availability of tickets for the popular shows on those days, they're often a little cheaper. And there are operators on the Strip in about three or four locations that sell discounted tickets for the same day's shows. Similar to the TKTS booth in New York Times Square, the idea is the same. It's either a discount or a half-price show with a small service charge. While people might not be able to get exactly the show they want for that night, they're good values and they can pay typically half price. And even some of the Cirque du Soleil shows appear on those discount boards. So I advise people to check those out and they can find out up to the minute what's available. Uh, and there's several locations on the Strip that they'll find these. But that's the best way to score discount tickets. And what about a visitor who wants to experience the luxuriousness of Vegas on a beer budget? That's a topic I love to talk about, and I call <laughs> it luxury for less. A lot of people don't think it's possible, but it is if you know where to look. So what I advise travelers to do is to register on the hotel's websites. Uh, a lot of people think that discounted hotel rates at luxury properties are only available to past guests. That's not true. You can register on the websites of these casino resorts, and you receive frequent emails with some great deals. And two properties that I like particularly for this are Aria, which I mentioned. They often have promotions where midweek rooms are down to near $100 a night, and they'll often throw in two free buffets per day with that. So the buffets are worth $35 a person. That makes the effective room rate $30. It's a very luxurious room. And bumping it up one more on the scale, going up to one of the most luxurious properties, is Wynn, Las Vegas. And people look at Wynn and think, oh, that's out of my budget necessarily. But it isn't because with their Wynn Insider rates, and again, you can just register on their website for those, I've seen them as low as $139 midweek. And also they'll include two buffets per day. There are incredible values on luxury hotels in Las Vegas. You just need to know where to look. As we think about Las Vegas and families, 
I know that the casinos have undergone quite a transformation from, let's say, the days of Circus Circus that was kind of a kid-friendly place to having uh, resorts that have these full-scaled themed amusement parks. Uh, How has Las Vegas gone about trying to serve families and yet keep the kids out of the casino as they have to by law? Well, it turns out uh, in that the whole family marketing phase didn't work for Las Vegas. There was a big push by the local marketing people and the casino resorts to appeal to families in the late 90s, I would say. It was a disaster, actually. The people with kids weren't out late enough. They weren't eating in the good restaurants. They were going to bed too early, thereby violating Las Vegas' strict no-sleeping policy. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't gambling in the casino, of course, because they had to take care of their small children. So this idea that the casino resorts had, um, and MGM Grand was one of them, they built a big theme park, was a complete flop for them in terms of revenue. So they did what Las Vegas does best. Uh, If something doesn't work, they yank it out, replace it with something else. Uh, They actually built condos on the site of the uh, amusement park. More and more over the past 10 or 15 years, there's been more of an emphasis, Vegas is for adults. Vegas was conceived and built and designed for and has been operated really for adults. They've tolerated children, but there's no real marketing geared towards families. Families are accommodated and tolerated, and as I mentioned, there are plenty of things for families to do, including a lot of free entertainment in Vegas. But I wouldn't say that Vegas is for families just because of the adult nature. David, in our closing minutes here, you touched on something that I want to follow up. A lot of gaming destinations, uh, and I think of Atlantic City and Reno as having uh, problems with their gaming industry, closed hotels, essentially vacant. And you mentioned the fact that when it's not working in Vegas, they find a way to change it, and perhaps more so than some of the other places. Why do you think that's the case in Vegas and not in some of these other places? You know, these other smaller destinations like Reno and Atlantic City were very dependent on the drive-in market. So uh, people driving from a relatively close uh, radius uh, to those destinations. And they're typically lower-budget gamblers, but they don't really go beyond that. They don't attract the bigger gamblers, the whales, as they call them, that come to Las Vegas. And just because of the scale in Vegas, it's a worldwide destination. People from all over the world come to Vegas just because it's over the top. It's Vegas. It's big. These other destinations like Atlantic City and Reno couldn't offer anything on the scale that Las Vegas offers. And that, combined with the fact that they're dependent on a drive-in market, is really what doomed them. David, with that, you make Las Vegas out to be the interesting place that I think many have come to know it. We thank you so much for being with us today on World Footprints. My pleasure. To plan your visit to Las Vegas with the help of David Yeskel, go to David's website, thelasvegas.guru, or follow him on Twitter at VegasGuru. We also have direct links to both sites on this show page at worldfootprints.com.
this Destination Quick Hit, let's head to North Little Rock, Arkansas, and learn a little from Stephanie Slagle. Stephanie, what would be the first chapter in my North Little Rock, Arkansas story? The first chapter of the North Little Rock story would probably start with the fact that North Little Rock was actually part of Little Rock, the state capital, and then it decided that it didn't want to be part of Little Rock anymore. So there's all sorts of interesting history between Little Rock and North Little Rock. We get along now, but back then, the Little Rock side, or at least the story goes, they would send their dogs across the bridge to North Little Rock, all of their strays, and they would call us Dogtown. It's a derogatory thing. But now, obviously, relations are a little bit better. We get along really well. And we even have a tombstone in our city hall that says, Here Lies Dogtown. of Florida, Miami, Orlando, and Tampa come to mind as the sun and fun big cities. But not to be forgotten is Jacksonville, a major business center, port, and naval base. Jacksonville has its own take on sun and fun. From beaches to parks to a compelling history, Jacksonville is full of surprises. Patty Jimenez of Visit Jacksonville takes us on an exploration of Jacksonville and its many treasures. Jacksonville is located in northeast Florida. We are the last city you see before you leave the state of Florida, or the first city you see as you're coming into the state of Florida on I-95. We are perfectly located where I-95 and I-10 convene, so if you're driving anywhere, from anywhere, into the state of Florida, you are driving by us. I, you're on the east side? The on east the east coast? side, correct. Northeast, so in the, on the east coast. Um, I invite everybody to stop by. It is a... Fantastic city. We are located between two other great tourism destinations, which is St. Augustine, which is one of the most historic cities in the nation, actually the oldest city in the nation, and Amelia Island, which is a fantastic tourism destination, beautiful resort. So Jacksonville is right in the middle, um, giving support to those two fantastic destinations. We are the largest city by landmass in the U.S., which a lot of people don't know. So there is a lot to see and a lot to do in Jacksonville. Uh, we also have the largest urban park system in the nation, which means anywhere you are in Jacksonville, you're really never more than 10 minutes away from an eco-adventure, you know? You could be right in the middle of downtown, right next to a building, get on a kayak or get on your car, and in 10 minutes you are literally in the middle of marshes and wetlands, just kind of like discovering what old Florida looks like, okay? <laughs> Um, I think what makes Jacksonville unique in the state of Florida is that we really give you that true, authentic Florida experience. You know, Jacksonville is a place where Floridians go to live, where we go to vacation in our own state. So we want to make sure that when people come from out of town, that they get the real Florida experience. You know, so you when you go to the beaches, they're white, sandy, they're wide, they're open, they're relaxing, they're not crowded, you're not fighting for space, there's free parking, they're beautiful, they have great hotels, great resorts, but they're not very intrusive to the beach. Yeah, I, I see you also have a historic preserve. Talk about that. We are home to the Timaquan Historic and Ecological Preserve. That's 46,000 acres of just wetlands and marshes. That is, I'm talking about wildlife, dolphins in the water. Um, it is just beautiful. You can take it by boat, which is what I recommend. There are a couple of companies that offer tours to go to the preserve by boat. Or you can hike it, you can bike it, you can take a kayak in there and just really be immersed in nature. Um, there are two fantastically wonderful historical sites within the preserve. One of them is Fort Caroline, which is the site of the first European landing in the state of Florida or anywhere in the U.S. It happened in 1562 where the French first landed, and that fort has been preserved. And then there is another location within Timberquan uh, um, Preserve, which is called the Kingsley Plantation, and it is the last remaining plantation era house in the state of Florida. Uh, the house has been preserved, the slave quarters have been preserved, and it really is as if you're walking through time learning about all the African-American heritage within the state of Florida and in the history of our nation lives right there. Um, it is run by the National Park System, so 
you know, you have rangers there all the time giving tours. You can take a self-guided tour. Entrance is free, and it really is a beautiful place to go visit. Give us a little bit of history about Jacksonville, because a lot of people, you know, thinking about Florida, of course they go to Orlando, Central Florida, the parks. But Jacksonville, I think, quite close, as we, you know, established it's on the East Coast, close to Georgia, uh, being your adjacent state. But a lot isn't really known about Jacksonville, so give us a flavor of the beginning of the city. The French first landed in Jacksonville in 1562. They had a short period there, but their influence is still still felt in the city. We still have a European influence in there. Um, then to our south, St. Augustine was founded, and it became a city, thriving city. So Jacksonville became the place where people lived when they were going to St. Augustine kind of thing, okay? Um, the city grew out of that. It was called Cow Fort because that is where, um, you know, you took your cows to go from one side of the river to the other side of the St. John's River. And for many years, it was called Cow Fort, and so it was a farming community. Ooh, we just celebrated our 500th. Uh, yeah, so we've been there for, for a really long time, but um, it became a, des- uh, we were the last tourist stop on the tra- train tracks for um, Mr. Flagler, so we were his summer tourism destination, so that's kind of when Jacksonville first started as a tourism destination, so we have a really long hospitality history. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're talking to Patty Jimenez of Visit Jacksonville. Mr. Flagler Flagler used to own oil, and with oil came money, and with money came trains. So he developed the railroad that went all through the East Coast. Um, In the early 1900s, we were the film capital of the United States. Uh, Asylum Films, which were, were shot in Jacksonville before they moved to Hollywood in Los Angeles. Jacksonville was Hollywood. So the first silent movies were made in Jacksonville. The first completely produced and star movies with African-American actors were made in Jacksonville. It was a thriving community for the African-American community. Um, That's surprising because, you know, it's, it's the South. It's really. Correct. Um, in Florida, you know, through many of the independent wars of Florida, remain a state where, you know, many slaves came to be free. And so in Jacksonville, they found the refuge to grow and thrive. Uh, the first insurance company owned and operated by African Americans happened in Jacksonville. The first woman to own her business in a museum and thrive in a shelter happened in Jacksonville. So we have a really big um, African American heritage. And is that celebrated anyway throughout is. the year? It is. Um, we have a museum called the Ritz Museum, which is completely dedicated to our local African-American history and how we influence the rest of the nation. Um, And then we have several communities where they still um, have some of the original houses and the original homes where kind of this um, progressive thinkers used to live at, so we still have that in Jacksonville, and it's very much celebrated nowadays. Um, We are also the city, well, we pride ourselves in being the birth city for Southern Rock. Uh, Leonard Skinner, the Elman Brothers, they're all from Jacksonville, kind of leading the movement. So, um, Sweet Home Alabama, yeah, it should have been Sweet Home Jacksonville, but, you know, we have that too. And then, through the years, it's been a, a city of evolving and changing and trying to figure out, you know, how can we compete and how can we stay relevant with some other bigger Florida destinations. And I think now we finally realize that what we have to offer is a true authentic Florida experience, you know? As a local, where do you go and what do you like to do? I live uh, very close to downtown in one of the historic neighborhoods and I like that I can walk from my house to a great restaurant with a five-star chef. It doesn't break the bank. I go there, I meet my friends, I can walk from there to a bar, have a cocktail, go to another place, dance a little, you know, and I feel safe. I can walk by home. I enjoy that. I enjoy that feeling of community where we're all really proud of our city. Um, we don't let anybody knock it down. We're really, really proud of it. And there's just so much to do. There's also so much water. So either if you're, you know, I, I, I personally enjoy feeling of the water. I feel like it connects us all. So if you're in the ocean, you know, we have 22 miles of beaches. If you're downtown, then we have the St. John's River running through it. So there's water everywhere. It makes you feel free. You know, you can just hop in a kayak or, you know, you can go downtown and catch a river cruise or a dinner cruise, that kind of thing. So there's just the opportunities to be entertained are pretty much endless. And I enjoy that very much. 
For more information on Jacksonville and Northeast Florida, go to visitjacksonville.com or visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we will explore the land of stories, the Czech Republic with Czech tourism's Yuri Duzer. But in a moment, we'll visit the home state of the third oldest National Football League franchise with 13 NFL championships to boot and the league's smallest city, the Green Bay Packers of Wisconsin. Christina Rosenberg and Carla Minsky of Travel Wisconsin stop by to expand our horizons when it comes to things to see and do in the Badger State. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, visit our website, worldfootprints.com. Wisconsin conjures up many images from beer, brats, and cheese to being the quintessential American Midwestern state. We caught up with Travel Wisconsin's Christina Rosenbergs and Carla Minsky at the Travel Media Showcase recently, held in another Midwestern state, Indiana, to discuss Wisconsin's many charms, most of them unfamiliar to many travelers. I'm Christina Rosenbergs, the uh, PR coordinator for the Wisconsin Department of Tourism. And Carla Minsky. I work for the agency that does the marketing for the Wisconsin Department of Tourism. We're both lifelong residents of the state, both UW-Madison grads, and lots of badger pride between the two of us. Oh, my. Now, you guys, we're still in the Big Ten, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Chris, what is special about Wisconsin? I mean, people know it's a Midwest state. They have a tendency to group all Midwestern states alike, and we're very, very different. So distinguish Wisconsin from other states, like my, my own, Michigan, and talk about what's special. Yeah. Wisconsin is very, very well known for its beer, cheese, and broth. We certainly have a wonderful food culture built around that. But it's also a great destination for families who really like to get out and experience the outdoors. So we definitely have a wonderful mix best of both worlds where you can get out, explore, get back to nature, and then come and enjoy this wonderful, rich farm-to-table movement as well that really is built upon our heritage and a lot of the cultures that came and founded the state. And there's a, a large German community. Is that the state basically comprised of German descendants? It's Yeah, there's huge German culture, but there's also a, a great mix of other cultures as well. Irish, Italian, Norwegian, Scandinavian, and you'll find that intermixed throughout the state, and that really contributes to our interest, really our love of the outdoors all year round, so not just in the summer, but in the winter as well, and also our food, you know, cheese and and beer, as we mentioned, very heavily German influence, but uh, we definitely have that injected in throughout all of the state and on our culture, who we are today. Both which very much appeals to me. <laughs> and Carly, I want to ask you, I know there's a lot of natural wonders. What is the Cave of the Mounds and the Apostle Islands? Are they one and the same or two distinct? Very two different areas of the state, two different destinations. Apostle Islands is just off the coast of Bayfield. It's the northernmost tip of Wisconsin. It's National Lakeshore designation. You can kayak out to the Sea Cave which is just almost a spiritual experience out there. It's also the location of a number of shipwrecks, so you can take boat tours out to tour the shipwreck areas. And then what's interesting, on rare years when the temperatures plummet, the lake freezes, Lake Superior freezes, and you can actually hike out on the frozen lake and those sea caves become ice caves, and you can tour the ice caves. The community has this feel, very maritime, almost what you'd expect on the East Coast. Great farm-to-table cuisine, small coffee shops, rare book stores, an artist community where what's really nice, you can go into the artist studio and meet 
the artist who's made the pottery that you're going to buy. So I think that connection to the culture there is so important, and you won't find a chain store or restaurant there. They are very careful to preserve the natural resources. Now, Cave of the Mounds is... For anyone who's grown up in Wisconsin, you likely did a field trip there because it's this geologic wonder, um, but it actually is a cave, and um, you'll learn what stalactites and stalagmites are when you're there, but the crystal formations in there are just phenomenal, and people are experiencing it as adults again because, it's a, you know, in the state there's a real sense of stewardship, and whether that is to the state forest or to some place like Cave of the Mounds. And so we had ecotourism and green travel before it was trendy. That's our way of life in Wisconsin. That's in our DNA. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking to Christina Rosenberg and Carla Minsky from Travel Wisconsin as we explore America's Dairyland. I would imagine that places like the Cave of the Mounds, it's a preserved site. Chris, I'll ask you, are there any sites in the state that have been designated as National Preservation Trust or historic markers? Yeah, absolutely. The Horicon Marsh is actually um, designated natural land area, and it's a beautiful place to go, especially if you love to watch birds, because it's a beautiful, um, they have some really nice observatories that you can go out and you can watch birds and watch the natural wildlife, and the landscape is just beautiful. You can see some beautiful sunsets over that marsh area. Carl, I want to go back to the water, because I'm a water baby, and I would tell anybody that the western side is Michigan, Lake Michigan area. Their beaches rival California, and I would imagine the same for Wisconsin. But I'm also a scuba diver, and so although the state is a little bit further north, colder water temperatures, I'm just wondering if there is any active scuba diving. Um, People are surprised to know the amount of scuba diving. And, in fact, we're fond of saying that the Lake Michigan isn't a shoreline, it's a coastline. In the Manitowoc Two Rivers area and in Sheboygan, it really is a coast, very popular for scuba divers, again, going to the maritime history and the shipwrecks. The country's maritime museum is actually based in Manitowoc, where you can tour a submarine, a real World War II submarine. And then off the coast of Sheboygan, as well as Milwaukee, and you think of Milwaukee, very urban area, surfing is huge. Sheboygan hosts the country's largest freshwater surfing competition called the Dairyland Classic. And while in other climates you surf during the summer months, when you come to Wisconsin, you surf in the fall going into the winter because that's when we have the best waves. And we were also an early adopter of the sport of stand-up paddleboarding, so that's very popular as well. You know, Wisconsin is a trendsetter every once in a while, and with water sports, we certainly are. What a thunk, a Midwest state. And Chris, I finally want to ask you, Wisconsin is a large state. People are surprised by how large our United States is and the masses of the state. Is there a driving trail that if somebody wanted to visit Wisconsin could explore, and how would they find that? Absolutely. We have the Great River Road, which parallels the Mississippi River, and it makes some really great stops along these small towns that are, all have their own individual identities. And you can go along this route, this beautiful road that parallels the bluff, and you can overlook the river, the Mississippi River, and it will take you all the way up to the top of the state. So it's a great way to explore the state if you love the beautiful views, if you like to take a drive. And it's great in the fall because you get to witness the changing of the colors and really experience one of the best seasons in the state. Ladies, thank you so much. Thank you. you. To learn more about Wisconsin and its many attractions, visit TravelWisconsin.com. We also have a link to that website on this show page at WorldFootprints.com.
this destination quick hit, we will visit the Caribbean island of Martinique with our friend Geraldine Rome. Bonjour, so I'm Geraldine from the Martinique Promotion Bureau. So if you don't know Martinique, Martinique is a beautiful island in the, located in the Caribbean. It's a French island with a French heritage, but also, and of course, a Caribbean island with the flavor, the spices, the, all the influences from Africa and for India also. So Martinique is well known for this Rome, because it's the Rome capital of the world. This food, the food is just absolutely delicious thanks to this culture which is really different and really mixed and uh, if I can say Martinique is just not just the beautiful landscape and not just a beautiful beach we have a strong culture and a strong heritage we are proud to to share with people and with the tourists so if you want to experience something different compared to the other island in the Caribbean so we are, we are really pleased to welcome you in Martinique and uh, don't forget Martinique c'est magnifique merci The Czech Republic came into being after a non-violent democratic revolution known as the Velvet Revolution in 1989. By 1993, the dissolution of Czechoslovakia formally created two new states, Slovakia and the Czech Republic. In the two decades since then, the Czech Republic has established itself as a destination that blends the old and new in an eco-friendly country that offers something for every traveler. Czech tourism's Yuri Duzer there is plenty about the place known as the land of stories. The Czech Republic was once known as Czechoslovakia. The dissolution of the Czech Republic and Slovakia followed what is known as the Velvet Revolution. What was that? Many people I meet in the United States, they still think of the Czech Republic as of Czechoslovakia. And I try to explain them that this country doesn't exist for more than 20 years. One of the reasons why they split is not only the Velvet Revolution. Uh, the Velvet Revolution took place in 1989, and the main reason for it was to get rid of the one-party government, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia in 1989. The Velvet Revolution was a like, non-violent protest of students and intellectuals who didn't agree with the one-party government. And it was successful. We became a new democracy in the Central Europe. But what you call as a dissolution of the Czech Republic and Slovakia, this is something that followed a few years after, precisely in 1993. And sometimes it's called a velvet divorce or a velvet separation. So that means that those two countries just split in a very peaceful manner and became independent on each other. As we think about the Czech Republic today, who are your neighboring countries? The Czech Republic is located in the very center of Europe, and it borders with four countries in total. On the western part, we border with Germany. On the northeast part, we border with Poland. And the southeast, there is Slovakia, our former country member. And in the south, we border with Austria. So let's say the Germanic countries are on our west and south and Slavic countries on the eastern part. Now, Yuri, although prehistoric and third-century Germanic settlements have been discovered in the area, the state of Czech actually dates back to the 9th century, which indicates that there are some really rich historical territories in the country. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Czech Republic, or the original Czech state, was formed sometime in the 9th century. And that means there's more than 1,200 long history. And there have been many different influences from our neighboring countries, from many different eras. And uh, this has shaped, let's say, the culture of the country as we see it nowadays. So, for example, always been part of some bigger monarchies or like state that has always been an influence on the Czech Republic. So, for example, during the 14th century, it was known as the Kingdom of Bohemia, and there was a famous emperor called Charles IV. And next year, we will celebrate 700th anniversary since he was born. And Emperor Charles, he meant a lot to our country. 
everybody probably knows the, the famous monument called Charles Bridge, which was built during his era. So that was the period where a lot of uh, Gothic architecture was built in the Czech lands. And we will definitely commemorate this era during following here, during the 700th anniversary. What will some of the festivities include? There will be a lot of things happening uh, in many places in the Czech Republic, not only in Prague, but also in other regions of the country where uh, you can find a lot of places and like pieces of architecture, castles and shadows that have some relation to, to the era of Charles IV. In terms of like other festivals and traditional events and happenings, we have a lot of them because the Czech Republic is very rich in culture. So every year you can choose from many festivals that present music, contemporary or even like old philharmonic or you can choose from many film festivals there is a very famous film festival held every year in Karlovy Vary mm. the Karlovy Vary International Film Festival and many more now with regards to the film festival itself is that held in Prague because I know Prague is ground zero for tourism it's ranked in one of the top five tourist destinations in Europe behind London, Paris, Istanbul, and Rome. So mm-hmm. it, are many of your festivals held there? Yes, many of the festivals are held in Prague, but as I said, uh, many of them are also held outside of Prague. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is that well, Prague has always been a, a great draw for tourists, and it has drawn visitors from all around the world, especially during the last 20 years when we became a democratic country. So just to give you an idea, there is more than 450,000 Americans coming to the Czech Republic every year, and most of them visit Prague, of course. But what we try to say that there are also many more places to visit. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're exploring the Czech Republic with Yuri Duzer. Focusing on Prague for a bit, what makes Prague so special in your opinion? I think it's uh, probably um, the, the architecture. It has a great reputation for like all styles of architecture that are present everywhere, like in the old town or even in the like residential districts around. Prague is known as a, a city of hundred spires, so there's a lot of uh, churches, a lot of cathedrals, a lot of like chateaus, and all of them are dating to uh, like different era. So you see a combination of Renaissance or Gothic or Baroque architecture, but for example, you can also find there a lot of buildings that are built in Art Nouveau or Art Deco style, or even few buildings or there's many new buildings that represent the contemporary architecture. So let's say it's very picturesque. It offers a lot of different angles, and this is the unique thing about Prague, that it combines so many different tiles. As you know, the, the city is divided by a river, so that also creates a lot of nice scenic views from everywhere you are in the town. As a city with such a long history that's found a way to blend different architectural styles, modern, as well as some of the the classic styles. How does the city appeal to a younger generation in terms of music, food, art, and so forth? Do young people flock to it? Of course they do. And that's the other side of Prague, or there's plenty more attractions you have just mentioned. So the vibrant cultural scene a lot of like musical venues, with a lot of uh, like indie cinemas, and also with a lot of nice restaurants and cafes. So foodie culture has also become very significant in the last few years. There is like many places opening every year, but not only in the city center where it's a lot of tourists, but as I tried to explain at the beginning, they are also opening in those residential areas, which are a little bit further from the city center. And they are often visited by international tourists as well, because they are looking for something else, something authentic mm-hmm. and something uh, what is not as touristy. So those districts of Prague that offer these cultural 
opportunities, they are very successful in drawing young people and young travelers. How easy is it to get around the country? I know it's easy to fly into Prague or to take a train from another European city, but navigating the country itself, what is the easiest mode of transportation? You probably mentioned it already. That's probably the train because we have a very dense network of railroads and can get like very fast from one part of the country to another. Just to give you an imagination, uh, how how big is the country? So the size is uh, something that could be compared to the state of Florida, I would say, and the population of 10 million. So it's rather small, but it offers a lot of interesting things, like everywhere around. So it's very easy and very comfortable. It's very affordable to travel by train. But if you maybe want to see more, say, if you want to plan your own itineraries, then I would definitely suggest to rent your own car and, and explore the country on your own. Mm-hmm. For a first-time visitor, then, to the Czech Republic, what are some of the must-see places for a traveler? So besides Prague, in the Czech Republic, there's 11 more UNESCO sites. But so there, together with Prague, there's 12 UNESCO sites in the Czech Republic. And all of them are reachable within one or more hours, like three hours at the maximum. So for a first-time visitor, I would definitely recommend to stay in Prague for a few days. Two or three days could be a good start, I think. And then I would set out on a couple of like day trip journeys to the regions and to visit some of the other historical places all around the country. If you are interested, for example, in outdoor and in like adventure, then the Czech Republic is also the right place for you to visit because we have a lot of uh, beautiful national parks with, with mountains, with, uh, with waterfalls, with uh, like sandrock towers, which are great for climbing. It's actually not only about the historical side, but it's also about the natural heritage. So a lot of outdoor opportunities is there as well. What would you say are the best times to visit the Czech Republic? Uh, I would personally recommend to uh, visit during spring or early fall, early autumn. The reason is that the climate is milder. It's not as hot as during the summer. It's also not as crowded with tourists. It just is the best time of the year for traveling around because you have a nice climate. It's great for taking beautiful pictures because, you know, we have uh, four seasons in the Czech Republic. The landscape or nature is changing in every of those seasons. And I think personally that the spring and fall is the most beautiful. Yuri, I wish we had more time to discover more about the Czech Republic, but we'll have to bring you back, I guess. Uh, Yuri Duzer, thank you so much for being with us on World Footprints. Thank you very much for having me. To plan your trip to the Czech Republic, go to czechtourism.com. That's C-Z-E-C-H tourism.com. We'll also have a link to that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. about Las Vegas, I can't help but think of Elvis or some of the bigger acts that uh, that we've seen when we were there. I was very surprised to hear Dave talk about the lack of family-friendly activities there in that Las Vegas has because you think of Treasure Island, Circus Circus, and I don't know if Circus Circus is still there anymore, but Vegas was billing itself as a family destination as well at some point. The family aspect of Las Vegas is one of those things that was tried a few years ago and it really hasn't been successful and the city's roots really is catering to grown ups, adults, adults and, and so forth. You want and to commit 
harmless misdemeanor. Right? <laughs> yeah, which is A-OK. You know, grown-ups need a place, too. The kids can have Disneyland and Disney World. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There is a place for everyone in Las Vegas. It just may not be for families on the Strip. I was also very impressed uh, and surprised about Jacksonville, just the depth of history in that area. I don't think of Jacksonville, I guess, as part of Florida. Like many others, I think of Orlando, I think of Miami, Tampa, the better-known cities. Jacksonville has a lot to offer, uh, lots of parks, uh, pristine beaches, lots of golfing, and it really is kind of a place that is somewhat overshadowed by everything else that's in Florida that's perhaps bigger, grander, warmer perhaps, but and the commercial. one yeah, Very but uh, the one thing that Jacksonville does have going for it is that it's not like the other places and it gives more of a traditional historical experience to Florida's roots and so that's certainly a reason to visit Jacksonville. The first European landing in the United States was seen in Jacksonville, and a lot of our nation's history began in Jacksonville, as was mentioned. I'm very intrigued, and I'd like to to learn more about the city. And then, of course, there's Wisconsin, our next-door neighbor, our our next-door neighbor when we lived in Michigan, uh, our Midwestern neighbor, and the crystal caves that they have, the Caves of the Mounds, and the Apostle Islands, which... Carla said is very spiritual when you're boating to the Apostle Islands. And it's funny that she said that because anytime I hear the word apostle, I think of the Bible and the 12 apostles. And, you know, and, and so for her to, you know, connect those dots, I and I didn't probe about uh, any relationship to uh, biblical references, uh, but I'm interested to find out more there as well. Well, Wisconsin is one of those places that's there, but a lot of times uh, it's it's overlooked. And I've spent time in Wisconsin either visiting family in Milwaukee or driving through the state in order to get to Minneapolis, as I did when I lived in Minnesota. And, and I still feel as though I have somewhat of a connection to, to the state, but there's so much that I'd love to see and do there that I haven't uh, at this point, and hopefully we can get back to Wisconsin in the not-too-distant future. And hopefully we can also make it to the Czech Republic. And it was very interesting to hear Yuri say, you know, that people still confuse um, the Czech Republic and Slovakia uh, as, as, as one country. They're two separate countries now, and I think he appreciated the fact that we, we knew that. Um, but as travelers, we should. <laughs> yeah. But the the history, you know, the the depth of uh, again the rich rich history um, throughout that country, dating back to the ninth century. I can't even visualize what a ninth century looks like or what the ninth century held for people. And the thing that stands out for me is the Velvet Revolution, in that you had a peaceful revolution to democracy without violence, and that's something that. Uh, uh, the Czechs can be proud of. Mm -hmm. Great show today, dear. And as we close out today, I want to leave you with these words. As you walk and eat and travel, be where you are. Utama Buddha. Thank you so much for joining us again today on World Footprints Radio. We're Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com you'll find an archive of past broadcasts travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.